I'm Jason Evans, and this is Factor 8. Welcome back. It is the 23rd of December, 2022. This is the Factor 8 podcast, the Christmas Eve's Eve uh, edition. A little bit later, I think, than um, I wanted to put out the final uh, podcast of the year. Namely, because um, I, I was hoping that um, part of this podcast would be discussing, um, in some detail at least, the submissions that have gone in from recognised legal representatives and some other core participants uh, to the inquiry. However, the inquiry haven't actually publicly disclosed them uh, as of yet. So we're not going to be doing that today, but there's still plenty um, of stuff to catch up on. And I'm sure that uh, in the new year, probably, hopefully, uh, if they're disclosed by them, the first podcast of the new year. Um, hopefully we'll be in a position to go uh, through those uh, submissions and maybe look at some of the key points from the various ones, including not just submissions that have gone in from uh, our community, the Factor 8 community and, and others impacted, but also submissions that have gone in from the government, the various uh, blood transfusion services and health boards, etc. Um, so we can take a look at those. But there's still, as I say, plenty um, that has been going on um, right up until the last minute before Christmas, really, um, that we can run through today. Now, of course, the big thing um, that's happened over the last few weeks is the statement that we had to the House of Commons on the 15th of December by Jeremy Quinn. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on. Um, because I wanted to kick off with a, a lesser known uh, statement that I think some people won't even know happened because it, it kind of floated under the radar, which was the the similar statement on the uh, infected blood compensation framework that was made to the House of Lords on the 20th of December, only this week. Um, and there were some interesting kind of things that were said that weren't necessarily said in the House of Commons uh, statement. And we can actually um, listen. I've just picked up a key point to listen in. So this, um, the Minister in the Lords responding is Baroness Neville Rolf. Uh, I think is the correct way uh, to pronunciate that name. Um, and... We'll just listen through here. Her response, this is a response to Lord Allen of Hallam. Nice rhyming name there. Um, during the debate, let's just uh, listen, listen in to, to this. It was only a short debate overall. Um, but for me, this part here was kind of one of the key, key moments that we'll listen into. Um, my Lord, um, perhaps I could just buy just start by saying that this is an unimaginably awful matter causing heartbreak and pain to all those directly and indirectly affected. It's a deeply shaming episode, as the noble lady opposite rightly said. And of course it dates back so many years to the 70s and 80s. It's a tragedy that has affected actually all governments um, and, and you know we have, we have to, to resolve it and, and move forward. Just want to say before we let this carry on, it's it's amazing, and this is a theme I'm going to pick up throughout today. It's just how, and I, I I spoke about this in the past, but just how the narrative and the way the scandal is spoken about has changed when it, when it comes to government ministers, those in power. It's it's totally changed. You know, just then to hear a minister say this this shaming episode. Now, I know some people might hear these turns of language and think. Oh, you know, it's it's just it's just a phrase. It's just words. What does it matter? Well, it it totally totally does matter, because little words and phrases on their own might not be massive, but when that phrasing becomes consistent over a prolonged period of time, as it has, 
the thing that changes is the narrative. And I bang on about this all the time, but the narrative, the way the narrative has changed, and we'll come back to that later on. Um, we'll let this play, but but just pay attention to that as the ministers are speaking, various clips we'll listen to today. Just think about the way the narrative has shifted from what it was six, seven, eight years ago. It's, it's quite amazing the way it's changed. And also the thing she didn't mention was the need to ease the stigma uh, and to be more vocal, I think, about the awful experiences of those involved and their loved ones, especially, you know, a long time ago when AIDS and HIV and so on were, were less well understood. Um, and if I could um, just respond to quickly to Lord Allen, who asked about the interim payments, which I think we've all welcomed. And it was, I think, been an amazing effort by the machine once those were recommended to actually make all of them by the end of October. And they, you know, they, can't, they, they, can't, they can only go up, they can't come down, which I think was the reassurance he was seeking. Um, moving on, um, the noble lady um, it made, had a number of, of, of questions. Um, I think the first question was, can we commit to publish a full uh, timetable for compensation. Clearly, that is something that we would like to do, but the truth is, um, as, you are, as she un will understand from the statement made in the other place, um, it was the intention of the government to publish its response to the compensation framework alongside the study, um, and timing and so on, but the sheer complexity and interdependencies have meant that we are not able to set a timetable or, to, to ask, answer one of her other points, to respond on all the other recommendations in Sir Francis's extremely um, uh, good and perceptive report on compensation. Um, because of the interdependencies, until we have the report from Sir Brian. Now, the, I understand just, just to, uh, that, that... Just to pause there as well. I mean, this the, the repeated use of the phrase or the phrasing, it's complex, there are complexities, and using that as a reason to, well, I hesitate to say do nothing but outwardly at least have the appearance of there's there's probably a joke in here somewhere about you know what do you get when you when you mix you know hundreds of lawyers with hundreds of millions of pounds it's complex or something along there's probably uh something someone can do better there but it is it is kind of crazy isn't it that that after all that has been done so far on not just the inquiry but also with what sir robert francis did in putting together that that framework exercise that still now all we get is it's complex well i think anyone could have told you that many many years ago but uh and now is the time for action obviously but anyway uh i digress let's uh, let's get back into this statement here from the minister baroness neville rolf is expected next summer um i can't say anything more explicit and clearly we will need to uh respond but the plans we've put in place will ensure that we are ready to respond. Uh, so the uh, group led by Sue Gray was uh, referenced and um, that is progressing work. Yeah and just to pick that up as well so this this is something that came from the statement that the paymaster general Jeremy Quinn made to the House of Commons on the 15th of December. If, if there was any detail at all in that statement i think the one bit of detail that was given it was it detail i don't know but we, we were told at least that sue gray is leading a cross-governmental department body group how formal is it i don't know we i don't think we've given a precise title for it from memory um but basically working on implementing well, actually, I'm going to stop myself there. I don't think it was said they're working on implementing the compensation compensation framework. I think I'm getting ahead of myself there. But there's some kind of cross-government uh, group that's been formed among, I think, permanent secretaries led by Sue Gray. And they, we also heard that the government are will be continuing or have been continuing to take advice 
from Sir Robert Francis, which I think in some ways um, is is good to know. But it's I think what's what's tricky is we don't know the level of that involvement. Um, it, it makes it raises so many questions, doesn't it? About why do they need that input? Do they need that input because there are parts of uh, what Sir Robert had suggested that they've decided or don't think they're going to do and therefore they want to work with Sir Robert to know what the next best thing is or is it that they um, it, it's just tiny little bits of detail that they want Sir it, it's just very hard to know because there was a total lack of detail in the, in the statement from the House of Commons it, we're left to try and read into things which there may not even be anything there to read into it may just be a load of fluff which i think it was really um some some amazing you know as someone myself that has worked in marketing and pr for you know many years um particularly prior to campaigning uh i think i'm pretty good at being able to um both write and decipher fluff which i think that that totally was using a lot of words to say nothing and yeah it, it raises a lot of questions let's get back into this this statement here on on many fronts this is a priority for government so she's bringing per together permanent secretaries from obviously there's a prime group of the treasury and hmrc the cabinet office leading that and dhsc but it's also involving dwp DLUC the devolved nations and others as necessary so that um, the preparations are being made so that once the complexities are resolved um, in, by, with Sir Brian's report, we're, we're able to move very quickly. Um, clearly the government want to work with the people affected. We've already, um, I mean, I, sh I should, take the opportunity to say how amazing the APPG has been. Um, so Dame Diana and Sir Peter Bottomley, and indeed in this house I know Baroness Finlay and, and Baroness Meacher have been involved. Um, and of course, both Sir, Sir Brian and um, Sir Robert have also consulted. And as we get closer to paying out more compensation, there will obviously be more work. Um. Interesting uh, point there, wasn't there? As we get closer to paying out more compensation, that seemed very definitive. And obviously I know that is, is a point that quite a lot of people are, are seeking answers to. You know, we, we've been saying for a long time now with, with the interim payments, for example, what are they an interim to? And, and one of the potential options is nothing. Uh, given the level of detail we have to date, but that was quite definitive there as we, to paying out more compensation. Um, worth just picking that point out, I suppose. With the various groups, it's, I'm glad to see the noble uh, Lord uh, Alan nodding because I think the schemes have got to be sort of collaborative, actually, to pick up some of the wordings of the uh, report by uh, Sir Robert. They've got to be collaborative and sympathetic and as free as stress as possible for these people who've had sort of un unending disappointments, um, but also simple and easy to access. And they've got to be consistent with our fight against fraud and scammers. So I'm very glad that the, uh, Lord Allen made that point. Uh, that is, again, uh, high uh, on our agenda. Um, yeah, on that point about fraud and scammers, you know, there's, there's something um, that that I've discussed with a, a number of people, you know, when I've been at or around the inquiry. And, and there is, I think, a question mark about how any potential future scheme or compensation framework deals with the potential of. There will be people, for sure, that were infected with, for example, hepatitis C through means other than a blood transfusion but also happened to have a non-infected which the vast majority were not infected blood transfusion 
during the relevant time who such persons uh, may on one hand they may um genuinely um not uh, be aware that they acquired uh, for example hepatitis c through another route and not the blood transfusion uh who who could you know want to make a claim and there could also be people who are aware that their hepatitis c was acquired through another route but also had a blood transfusion during the relevant time and could simply uh lie basically about the source of their uh infection and i don't know you know i've had many discussions with people about this i that is a whole area where i i think the solution is really really very very difficult especially when the the obviously on the other side to that wall you have people that were infected with with hepatitis c uh through for example a blood transfusion who may maybe don't have medical records don't have you know full uh, you know proof and are then in a in a in a battle uh, uh, that that balance about not wanting to turn down or deny a genuine claim um big because of a lack of proof whilst also wanting to prevent fraud and and, and preventing non-genuine claims or not even non sometimes non-genuine if it like the latter example i gave there where someone who knows that their infection was not acquired through a blood transfusion but can see there's the potential to make that argument where where is that but i think that 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 particular element is very very difficult and i i don't know what the solution is i think that that needs a hell of a lot of thought and there probably are some solutions to it but i think no ultimate answer there is going to be a hundred percent foolproof but um yeah an area for a lot of thought for sure we are working cross government to make sure we can deliver on the recommendations of the report um as i have already explained um you know it's a high level cross government working group um it's meeting monthly it's gearing up thinking about the it systems how we make sure we contact people who might want to seek compensation once we know the precise framework um and making sure everyone can respond i think with these public issues that I think publicity is very, very important, um, and people across the house can help with that. I do, I do hope as well that on on this note, when they're talking about contacting, registering people, the the schemes, I really hope that the the people working on this kind of get smart in terms of advertising in today's world. You know, print media is dying by the day. Now the the tools exist online to target people, to remarket to people to I'm not going to go into all the details, but that the the the, the um, level of targeting that can be done online to reach people that are potentially eligible for compensation going going forward are are there. But also I hope just you know the, the, there isn't just a whole bunch of money spent on newspaper adverts and things like that, which probably aren't gonna be the best the best way but also i think one thing that the government could do now that would absolutely help with this particularly when it comes to those affected who um are not eligible for any kind of um ongoing financial support or, or interim compensation right now is to allow them and i've argued with um the english infected blood support scheme for the best part of two years um and i actually submitted these email trails over 130 pages i think to the inquiry only a few weeks ago um of of the battle to one get factor eight listed on the support scheme website which they just re refuse to do uh, and have done for a long time on on a completely irrational basis i won't go into all the details now um but also the the, the most important thing they could do is to allow those people affected who are not eligible for any kind of ongoing financial support or interim compensation to register just for news and updates just to, to 
have a simple mailing list widget on their website. It would take literally five minutes for anyone that knows anything about websites to install that on their website. And then people could just enter their email address and the name and they'd be able to receive email communications from IBIS about what's going on, even if it doesn't affect them, just so they're in the loop. I've argued with them for that for years and to date they still haven't done it. It, it, it would cost almost nothing to do uh, in time or resources, yet they just refuse to do it. It didn't have to be any more difficult than... Um, you can go on the Factor 8 website. There's a sign-up to our mailing list widget. And, and, and if I can set that up, I'm sure someone you know in the civil service can set up a similar one on the IBIS website. I'm sure they could do it. I'm sure that's not even the issue. Um, the issue is, for, for some reason, that is beyond me, they just don't want to. But um, if anyone in a position to... Uh, make that happen listens to this please do that i think it would go a long way to to helping uh, a great many people so that people do know what is happening um the final point i don't think i've covered is about uh whether there should be an alb that's one of the recommendations um in the uh robert sir robert report and we are of course giving that very careful consideration it's clear how important it is that any vehicle for delivery of a compensation scheme carries the trust of the victims. I really can't make that point strongly enough. Um, but it's also got to achieve the objective of delivering compensation in a speedy and efficient manner. And of course, there are issues about legislation and so on, which the Grey Group are looking at. So, um, you know, to conclude, um, we are doing everything that we can um, within the constraints that I've described and which um, the Paymaster General um, who spoke in the House last week was very honest about, we will be uh, making progress statements to the House um, so that we don't repeat the difficulties of the past and we're absolutely determined as a government to give this priority and get this thing sorted because it has been a serious fa failure and we have to um, compensate those um, who've had such a ghastly time. Again, I can only re-emphasise what I said about the narrative. Could you imagine seven, eight years ago, government ministers saying, we have to compensate. Not we might, not we could, not we should. We have to compensate. It's uh, Things have certainly moved on. A lot and that's why i wanted to you know play that in full i thought it was a um powerful and important you know statement from the minister i know it's not intricately detailed um but it, it's reading into the the overall message i think that, that that says a lot this has been a serious failure and we have to compensate could you could you have imagined you know jane ellison nicola Blackwood and Milton, you know, you can go back through all these ministers. Could you imagine any of them saying something along those lines? Because I certainly couldn't. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, obviously, we can't go into detail on the submissions because they have not been disclosed uh, publicly. However, uh, personally, I would like to thank, uh, you know, ev everyone that has worked on those. Obviously, in particular, our legal team at Collins Solicitors, Stephen Snowden, Casey, Brian Cummins, AK, and of course, Danny, Des, the whole team at Collins, including, uh, you know, all the, all the paralegals uh, as well, uh, Rio and, and, and everybody. I'm not, I'm not going to name them all. But um, thank you. It is it is greatly appreciated, and I and I say that on behalf of I think of a great many um, people. And thank you, you know, to to all the legal teams that have pr produced uh, sensible uh, submissions. So, uh, what else? Let's get back to then the written statement in the House of Commons on the fifteenth. Jeremy Quinn. Now, I'm not going to labour on this point too much because obviously this was a couple, you know, a while back now. However, and 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 we picked up some of the detail from that House of Lords uh, statement as well. 
But let's have a quick listen to, I guess, I guess probably uh, the, the part where we get a little, little bit of detail. We're not going to go through all the questions and everything, but just one of the parts where we get a little bit of uh, detail, at least from uh, Jeremy Quinn, Paymaster General, 15th of December. However, I want to assure those affected that this government, which delivered a statutory inquiry and interim compensation, remains absolutely committed to our intentions in commissioning the Compensation Framework Study. Accordingly, and recognising the need to continue to build trust with the affected community, I'm just going to stop there as well. I've been I've been wondering for a while now. I was listening back to this earlier. Um, I don't know what Jeremy Quinn means there when he says we remain committed to commissioning the compensation framework study. I mean, to me, that says we're going to make the compensation framework study happen in full. I mean, we are committed to commissioning the compensation framework study. I mean, I I don't know how else to interpret that, really. I mean, I think there's there's so much from what was said in this statement that needs clarification. But And, and, and that just comes out so rapidly, uh, it's very easy to miss it. But the, the minister just said, we are committed to commissioning the compensation framework study. Uh, so, I mean, that could be a seriously major thing, but it was said so off the cuff and so rapidly that, that I think the, when I actually watched this the first time round, I didn't even notice that was said because it was said so kind of just rushed. Um, but I think the government may have just said Sir Robert's study will be implemented in full. I, I don't, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's what that feels like to me. But uh, anyway, let's carry on listening. I want to share with the House the progress we are making. A cross-government working group, coordinated by the Cabinet Office, is taking forward work strands informed by Sir Robert's recommendation, and that a cross-departmental uh, group of permanent secretary level has been convened, chaired by the Cabinet Office second permanent secretary, Sue Gray, to oversee this work. I am pleased to be able to say that Sir Robert has agreed to provide independent, transparent advice to this group as work progresses. I am grateful to him for his continued input into our thinking. It is my intention over the coming months to update the House on progress and, where it is possible, to provide greater clarity on the Government's response to Sir Robert's recommendations prior to Sir Brian's report being published. Well, I'm going to stop it there. We're not going to, we're not going to play the whole thing, but I, I just wanted to play the part where we hear a little bit of detail uh, about this Sue Gray group. Now, with all that uh, being said, we obviously need a lot more detail on exactly what that is and what's happening. I mean, to me, I know to many people, it did feel a bit like this announcement was that uh, we're making an announcement that we uh, will make more announcements, uh, which isn't the best thing in the world. So we'll have to see what becomes. But to me, when I hear promises of uh, better updates and more communication, my mind can't help but go back to the minutes that came out of a meeting we had at the Cabinet Office in January 2020. And within those minutes were promises of more regular updates and they even contained uh, timescales. I think it was like once every few months. I can't remember exactly, so d d this shouldn't be quoted on. But it did have basically promises in there of better communication and when it would be made. And I wrote to the Cabinet Office weeks ago now to flag uh, that those things had not happened and, and asking for a response, and I still haven't had one. So... Forgive me for not holding out too much hope that we'll get better communication now, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope, as ever, to be to be proved wrong uh, on that point, but there you go. Right, slightly uh, different subject. If we roll back to the 24th of November, uh, you'll remember we had the debate, the Westminster Hall debate, where the minister responding there was Alex Berghart, um, so this was the 24th of November. Now we spoke about that debate in the last podcast. I'm not going to speak about the debate itself again. However, 
what's really important about that debate is ahead of that debate, you know, there were a number of briefings flying around. Um, there was a briefing by Factor 8. There was a briefing by the APPG. But there was also the debate pack that is authored and produced by officials in Parliament. Now, upon reading through that debate pack, I was concerned about some inaccuracies it contained. And I spoke about this in the last podcast. So again, um, if, if you want to get the full rundown on the inaccuracies, uh, which are addressed somewhat in the response I'll get into in a minute as well, um, listen to the last podcast first, uh, if you haven't already. Now, a few days later, after I'd written to the authors of this report, I received a reply, which I'm going to read out in full. Uh, but before I do, I want to say that I was very grateful for not only the reply, but for its content as well, because I think it was one of the few times where I'd written to, look, I know that the people that wrote this report are supposed to write it independently and biasedly, um, and they are not the government. But I think you can get so used to writing to anyone with an at parliament.uk email address, expecting either no reply or a reply that is unhelpful, that answers a question that wasn't asked. I'm sure people listening will know that feeling, the copy and paste replies, etc. Um, but this reply, which took only a few days, I thought was very thoughtful and addressed the actual issues I'd put forward and provided a solution. And I think it's very difficult for any 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 human be being to to say, you know, oh, I got that wrong or I could have done that better and to, to, to fix whatever it is. But this person did exactly that. And I, and I think that was awesome. And so the reply I got back... Um, said this, Dear Jason, thank you for your email and for taking the time to get in touch about the Common Library's Infected Blood Inquiry and Compensation Framework Debate Pack prepared ahead of the debate in Westminster Hall on the 24th of November 22. My apologies for the delay. I wouldn't apologise for a delay of a few days. I mean, God, how, how long have we, have you, many of you, waited for replies from MPs, etc.? And look, they have busy schedules. I'm not taking shots at MPs, but... Uh, Anyway, there's then a, a description of what debate packs are and what they're intended for. And then it says, Below I've taken your concerns in reverse order and outlined what actions and or amendments have been made. Section 1.3, the debate pack has been corrected to state that the Cabinet Office published Sir Robert's report in June 2022, a reference to a written statement made by the then Paymaster General on the 15th of March 2022, has been added to make clear that A, the government received Sir Robert's report on the 14th of March 22, and that B, the Paymaster General stated at that time in March 22, that it was his intention to publish the study and the government response in time for the inquiry and its core participants to consider them before Sir Robert gives evidence to the inquiry, which of course we know uh, did not happen. Uh, well, at least the government's response wasn't published in time for that, uh, only the study itself. And the reason for that correction was because the uh, debate pack, as the Cabinet Office uh, website did, said that Sir Robert published his report uh, in June, which was not true. It was the government that published it in June, and Sir Robert gave it to the government in March. Then section 1.1, uh, this reply, and this is from, this reply I should say, it's from Elizabeth Ruff, Senior Medical and Science Researcher, Science and Environment Section at the House of Commons. So in section 1.1, I'd raised some issues basically around the statistics of how many people are infected with what and uh, how many are likely to be alive and have died of certain things, etc. Um, I won't read out this whole section, but suffice to say, um, corrections have been made around there or more context have been added in um, as well. So... You know, I, I don't know if anyone from the parliamentary research uh, team listens or will listen to this podcast at some point. But, you know, credit where credit's due. You know, I think that was very good of Elizabeth to take that information and, and make those corrections something which uh, should happen more often. You know, that we often flag um, inaccuracies to the cabinet office and other departments about things that said in parliament and only very rarely... 
uh, will they correct Hansard? In fact, from memory, I think the last one to do it was David Liddington. And that was quite a few paymaster generals ago now. I don't, was he even paymaster? I think he was chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. But they changed that they at some point they changed the the kind of ministerial stuff that you get with with certain positions because there was a time where those that combo of the, the Duchy Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and the paymaster general was all in one, and then they separated it, and then it was just minister of state for the cabinet office and. Now it's something different, but I think it's changed a couple of times. But um, there we go. So good to see those corrections were made to that debate pack, particularly if that debate pack is 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 to be used again in future debates uh, as well. We did write um, to the paymaster general on the 19th of December uh, as well. So just a few days ago to Jeremy Quinn in regard to the statement that he'd made on the 15th of December. Um, we said in that letter, I'm going to summarize it rather than reading the whole thing, but we said while there was upset about the timetable and lack of detail, um, that we welcome this commitment uh, some, some way through the debate. There was a question from Stephen Kinnock MP, and the indication in response to that was that the government has accepted the, case, the moral case to pay compensation to those who had lost parents, which was the first time we had heard that in that context. Um, that development was also covered in the Mail on Sunday as well. Shout out to Tony Ferugia for helping and participating uh, in getting that news article to happen. It was only a very small article in the paper. I don't actually think it appeared online, um, but it was actually in the paper, the Mail on Sunday that week. Um, and so we said in this letter, um, I said, we asked that a similar explicit statement be made quickly regarding both A, the estates of those who have died and B, those who had lost their children, um, because I totally understand how whilst getting that kind of statement in that debate will be of some slight minuscule reassurance um, to those who lost parents, we still need, you know, to, to, to get the same for estates. Uh, and those who lost their children. Really, really important. We then uh, go on to say, um, we, we, we highlighted, so at the end of the uh, debate, towards the end, there was a question where, I can't remember exactly what it was about now, but it, it, it was something in terms of making the scheme simple, making the scheme simple. And the response that came back back contained the quote this was from jeremy quinn we do not want to lay onto that the complexities of having to seek expensive advice to be part of a scheme which to me and i think many people sounds a lot like we don't want you to have lawyers which is pretty worrying and something that we know the government have attempted time and time and time again they tried it with the when we're at the terms of reference, or even before the inquiry was established, they didn't want us to have legal advice with the terms of reference, even though they'd given it to Grenfell. And I think that's the only reason we got it was making that argument that why should some people have it for this other inquiry, but we shouldn't. And eventually, they you turned on that, and we we got legal advice. But at every stage, they attempt to shut out lawyers. They do it with meetings. They do it with input into various things. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if they attempt to do it here. And so we've said, uh, it's unclear exactly what is meant by this. However, I would like to clarify that those impacted must have access to independent legal advice when making claims, compensation claims. It is surely within everyone's interest to avoid the negative attention attracted by the Winrush scheme. And the reason I've said that is there's been problems, a lot of problems, uh, with Winrush compensation. And... Um, Many of those, at least, stem from problems around legal advice, legal representation, people not understanding the forms or what they're supposed to say or do or whatever. And the government must know. They must know that what they can't do is put together what you know what they think is this you know amazingly well-informed team of civil servants that are just going to help people over the phone to fill in their form. That's not going to do. We need lawyers. Uh, you know, in my in my opinion. The only reason we are where we are is because of lawyers. And I know that there are, you know, some 
some people have negative feelings towards lawyers. You know, I, the, the amount of times I've heard people say things like, well, the only ones, you know, that, 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 that come out well of all this is the lawyers, how much money are the lawyers making, etc. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need them. And, you know, in the example, you know, of Collins, who represent us, before the inquiry was announced, they took they took risk, you know, financial risk to to take on our case. And as far as I'm concerned, with that risk, considering it's paid off for the inquiry, should come, you know, I hesitate to use the, the word reward, but it should. And and we need that advice. That That's, you know, I've got no, there is no incentive for me to say that other than I think I genuinely think it's the right thing. I think people need proper legal advice, just the same way they've needed it throughout the whole inquiry process. So let's hope that we get some clarity uh, on that point. And I hope, I really hope this whole thing uh, doesn't get steered towards a place of trying to do us out of legal representation. I really hope that doesn't happen. Um, so I think um, I think that's where we'll leave the debate there. So we've got just over three weeks um, until the closing hearings begin. It's weird because you, I think we all might be in the mentality of, oh, you know, we're going on a break now. It's Christmas. It's New Year. Um, but if you remove that, there's just over three weeks until the closing hearings begin, which uh, all being well will be the last hearings we have at the inquiry, but you never know what may happen. There could always be some very unusual event that would trigger Sir Brian to call another hearing. We'll see. But all being well, those will be the final closing hearings. Um, the registration is closed on the Effective Blood Inquiry website now, but you can still email the inquiry, the email's on there uh, if, if you do want to in attend. Um, I do want to attend any of those hearings, the email's on the website. But I think, yeah, as we come to the end of 2022, I mean, it's been obviously a a massive year in many respects. You know, it's it saw the end of the evidence hearings of the inquiry. It saw the delivery of the, the compensation framework study, the paying of the first round of interim compensation payments, this shift in the narrative, which I'll come back to in, in, a, in a second. And some, you know, some of the witnesses we heard through the inquiry this year, you know, pe people like Andy Burnham, who, you know, a lot of us have been waiting for a long time for him to have that chance to, to put it down on the official record, you know, seeing Jeremy Hunt give evidence to the inquiry, John Major gave evidence to the inquiry this year. You know, the 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 we had some seriously big names give evidence to the inquiry this year, and not just big names, but important evidence. Uh, sometimes because it revealed, uh, I guess, facts that we didn't know, or insight that we didn't think we'd get, and I guess sometimes because it just showed. The attitude, right? The whole John Major bad luck, random sample. Yeah, I mean, it was just a classic, wasn't it? Oh, I didn't mean bad luck. I meant a random sample. It's like, try again. You know, you can keep going with different terms. But I mean, it's, yeah, a big, a big, big year, obviously, for for all of us and for the for the, the campaign. And perhaps, perhaps, um we are we are now really you know i i do think um actually that next year really marks the beginning of the end you know as as we get to those closing submissions uh well i think it is the beginning of the end isn't it because well i mean for a great many of us i think there is this real recognition that you know there's not going to be another public inquiry uh this is it and and however it unfolds, you know, and that that fallout will take a year or two, um, maybe maybe a little bit more. But that is that is the end or the ending of the campaign, of the campaign. And I stress that not the ending of everything, obviously, but the ending of the campaigning. So 
yeah a big big year and and i wanted to end actually just on you know i was talking i've been talking about the the change the shift in the narrative and it's really easy to forget it because it's happened slowly it's crept on us slowly over the last kind of six years the shift in the narrative and i for one would like to give some credit actually to to lord david owen for back in 2016 many of you will have been there in the september we had arranged a film screening at the institute of contemporary arts of the the documentary film uh, bad blood a cautionary tale which is about the blood scandal in america and you know i'd invited every possible kind of politician hematologist uh that i could uh find contact details for on the internet and in the end uh outside of our community uh, a handful of people from those worlds uh showed up one of them was lord david owen uh, baroness featherstone was there dr edward tuddenham came and we had two people from the plasma protein therapeutics association that represent the pharmaceutical companies uh flew in from the u.s which was really weird. Um, and for some reason, I remember one of the guys, there was, there was a guy called Jan Bolt, who's, I think he was like the main guy, he had like this, uh, I think he's like Austrian or German accent. And uh, his his kind of counterpart, who was, who was an American guy, had this like black folder that on the front of it, it was just a, an American dollar bill, which I just thought, given they're coming they're representing the pharmaceutical industry and like their folder is just a massive picture of a dollar bill just kind of said everything and to bring that you know you just carrying it you know to that event i just thought was a classic just faux pas um but anyway the point the reason i even brought this up is uh david owen I'd, i asked david owen if he'd give a speech after the film uh and he very kindly agreed and he spoke for about just over 15 minutes and you know i've discussed this with tony Frugia a number of times but he he told us what to do there he gave us some advice and i think there were a couple of us myself in particular that took that advice uh, very seriously and to heart and i went and it would become the crux of the of the factor eight campaign at least and so let's just listen back to that now because i think it's really important as to how the narrative has changed. So this is David Owen, uh, September 2016 in London. I don't know where we're going to go. I've almost given up myself. Where did it all go very badly wrong? The cover-up, as I think. I think it began in France, where the Minister of Health, Fabius, uh, who then later went on to be Prime Minister, made a decision that many other health ministers have made. It was not peculiar to him, but he was taken to court and it looked at one moment to see if he might even go to prison. And I think that at that stage, there was a decision to clean up the, all the files and stop some of the incriminating evidence. It seems in America they've been more successful at getting out the truth, and particularly that inquiry that took place when it went, was given the charge of re the review of the whole proceedings in 1995. What should we do now? Well, I think you should go on pursuing the financial uh, compensation. It's inadequate for very many people who have been affected, individual families. And I think that's certainly, a, the, the thing cannot be just left. And so that one I do believe you should do. I think it should become much more evident, the scale of the cover-up and the way that the truth has been avoided, because it's only when that has become common knowledge medical evidence i mean that that for me that was the key thing it should become much more evident the scale of the cover-up the scale of the cover-up you know and and that i think it's almost safe to say at this point that we've we've done it you know it's not to the point where like you can't stop nine out of ten people in the street and say to them explain the contaminated blood scandal to me and, and and they will and in fact 
you know, some of them <laughs> or many of them may not have even heard of it still. But I think it's become common knowledge in the sense of the people that we needed to get it, to understand it, or to get that it was a scandal and not an unfortunate shame. I, I almost feel like it's been done, you know, because never again, you know, and I think this is probably a great way to close off this podcast and close off the year is never again will we hear a minister say they received the best treatment possible at the time. Nothing more could or should have been done. Everything possible was done, you know, properly, as fat, you know, as quickly as it possible. We will never hear that again. And I think if if nothing else uh, <laughs> it materializes, which is impossible, I think. Uh, but if nothing else was to ever come, you know, I think that uh, for me is is one of the biggest things this community. Uh, has achieved is that those lines can never again be said will never again be said i'm i'm really really uh confident of that so look we're going to end we're going to end the podcast i'm going to say everyone have a merry christmas a happy new year we'll be back obviously in 2023 we'll do a podcast before the closing hearings uh begin in london uh i would usually be saying look i can't wait to see uh everyone in london at the closing hearings uh however uh you know we've got the the collins submissions kick off the opening hearings on the 17th this is just to give you a little prose of my life at the moment collins uh are first up we're first up our submissions on the 17th uh the day after is the department of health on the 18th their submissions and uh the, the my wife's due date for my first child is the 19th now i know babies don't usually come on their their due date but what i'm not looking to happen is is for me to be in london and get that call saying you should probably you know come come back to coventry because uh, it's happening all aboard so look we'll see we'll see what happens and if i can be there i will be there but uh, <laughs> i hope you'll understand uh, i may not be able to be there in person but I shall be watching for sure, no, no matter what happens. So, yeah, as I say, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I do believe it is the beginning of the end. We'll keep pushing and we'll keep fighting until we get there. For everyone, bye for now. I'm Jason Evans and this is Factor 8. Factor 8.